But we're in Judges chapter 17 tonight, possibly 18. We'll see where it goes, but uh, Judges 17 especially. And um, let's uh, open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you <clears throat> for your word. Uh, thank you that we can open up our own personal copy of it and study it at home and take it with us and hide it in our heart. And Lord, we pray tonight as we look at Judges um, chapter 17. And uh, Lord, we just pray that it's, it's kind of... From here on, it's kind of an appendix of the whole book, really. But we'll look at this, and, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us to apply some of the principles we'll glean from it to our own personal lives. Thank you for each one that's come out tonight. We pray that you would continue to um, bless each one. Thank you for protecting our church, and pray for those who um, may not be feeling well. Just pray that you'd minister to their bodies as well. And we just uh, thank you for your, your goodness and your grace in our lives. We, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 17. There was a uh, well-known poem written by an Irish <coughs> uh, poet. His name was William Yeats. And it was called The Second Coming. And part of that poem, it, it, was, it was basically describing the collapse of, the, of civilization as we know it. <laughs> and how it's going to get worse. And uh, one of the lines in the poem says this, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. So it's just, it's a good picture really of what we see here, even in these closing chapters of Judges. Um, they echo that theme, the center cannot hold. You, you cannot continue to do wrong behavior time and time and time again and expect to get away with it. Um, the nation that once marched <laughs> triumphantly through Canaan um, to the glory of God now really disintegrates into a uh, morally, uh, a politically um, disgrace to the Lord's name. And that's kind of what we expect. It, it says... When there is no king in Israel, the people are basically flaunting the, the laws of God. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Um, and so we're going to look at these, these, this chapter tonight especially. And it's kind of, like I said, the, this is not written <coughs> um, chronologically. This doesn't happen after Samson and the other judges. This is kind of a, an appendix um, in chapter 17 really to the end. Uh, it doesn't come in, in, in that time order. So you can't think of it as sequence. Where he's kind of like he's giving us a glimpse back. He's, he's revisiting. This is how bad it was, just to remind you. And uh, um, when I was reading through some of the commentaries and even some of the people that preached on this, they would just stop at chapter 16. And they wouldn't <laughs> like, well, what about 17, 18? You know? And um, maybe that was why. I don't know why. Or they were just doing a study on the judges themselves. But it's kind of a uh, uh, just an overview of of this whole time of the judges, and it's a it's a uh, cameo that kind of presents the general conditions that prevailed over the whole time that that we would call the period of the judges. But what we're going to see is even tonight, um, this whole time period has an uncanny similarity uh, to what we're seeing all around us. It really does. Um, and the closing chapters of the book of Judges really tells us of a time when there is no king in Israel and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And, you know, that's what our culture is leaning toward. Pulling away all authority, squashing down all authority, and just go out and do whatever you want because there's no consequences. Well, there is going to be consequences. <laughs> but maybe not from their society, but from the Lord eventually. And so these chapters, 17 through 21, took place earlier in the period of the judges, probably um, before the, even the 40-year rule of the Philistines. Uh, because if you think about it, the, the movements of, of this tribe of Dan that we're going to see in chapter 18 would have been very difficult. And the war against the, 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 
uh, against Benjamin impossible if the Philistines had been in charge at the time. It just wouldn't have happened. So it's kind of looking back at that. It's a historical chronology. And it kind of puts everything together in appendix at the end of this book. But there's three major areas of life here that we're going to focus on. And three major areas that were falling apart. And it was the home, um, you could say society, and ministry. Uh, and so I, I want to read chapter 17, and we'll see how far we get through this, and we'll get, make it through chapter 17. I just don't know if we'll get into chapter 18 or not tonight. But it, follow along in your Bibles as we read um, Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my, my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from, the hand, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and uh, household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a uh, Levite, and he sojourned there, he traveled there, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver, a year and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper us, will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. And we'll just stop there for tonight. But it's interesting when you when you stop and you begin to realize these closing chapters tell us of this time, and we're here it over and over, there was no king in Israel, and everyone, every man did what was right in their own eyes. This is a time of moral, uh, religious, and uh, political decay throughout Israel. And he gives us illustrations of it here in your outline. Uh, first, there's a religious, in a religious sense, there's the decay of idolatry in chapter 17 and 18. And then there's a decay of morality in chapter 19. And uh, we need to understand that God, when he created the world, when he started everything else, when he created us in Genesis, he, he established three basic institutions in our society. The first one was the home. The second one was uh, the human government. The third being the worshiping community. Um, whether it was Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament. You have those basic breakdowns of our complete society. And, and since the beginning, since God created that, that way you had the home, the human government, and we'll just call it the church, worshiping community. Uh, Satan has desired to undermine, and I would say rather successfully, all three. He does it at the beginning with the first in the home, for the home has always been the basis for the rest of society. It's the foundation. And ever since we read about that first couple 
in the early chapters of Genesis, God created the first family, Adam and Eve, and it has been the foundation of the other institutions that society would build and humanity would, you know, uh, create. But what happens? Satan attacks the family. And we find that the very foundations of uh, not only the family, but of human government, and even of the church, are undermined. The enemy doesn't just sit by and say, okay, I'll just let this stuff slide. Um, And the foundation begins to crack. It begins to crumble. And it's not very long before parts in society and all the institutions that make it up follow suit. And that's what we see happening, even in our own country and the world, for that matter. And that's why we believe as a church that, and as Christians, as born-again Christians, we believe the family is important as God created it. Because it's the foundation of all of God's other institutions. And indeed, the foundation of all society. The psalmist said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And around us, what we see going on is Satan is trying to break up homes. He's trying to corrupt government. He is uh, apostating the church from within. He's making individual Christians, their lives and Christendom, live in, in what we would call a largely idolatrous society. And he seeks us each day to put other things in front of him. Uh, the enemy wants us to have uh, idols in front of our God before the Lord in our personal lives and even in our church. But the ultimate reason really for the decay, I would say, in the home and in government and in the worshiping community is simply this. There's a lack of the lordship of the Lord of, of Jehovah in these institutions. In our respect, there's a lack of lordship of Christ in the life of believers. And it's been usurped, unfortunately, by the will of men and women. Uh, nobody cares what God care, is concerned about anymore. It's all about what we want. It's what is best for us. And so when we look at these opening chapters here, uh, it says in verse 6, and once again in verse, um, all the way at the end, chapter 21, verse 25, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Well, what did the king represent to Israel? The king really represented the rule of the Lord. He was really the, the, the Lord's representative. Uh, and what happened is lordship was usurped and self-will was put in its place. And we see this going on all over the place. And you have to understand when it says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. What that means is the men and the women are, were not doing things that they deemed wrong. Rather, they were doing things that they deemed, they thought were right. It's not like they're out there willfully doing things but they're they're doing wrong things but they think they're right things in other words they didn't think they were doing anything that was against god in this context and this is really where our society is today this is what relativism does to a society when there is no standard of truth what happens where everything's relative so you know what if you want to if you're a guy and you want to marry a guy well go ahead whatever makes you happy if you want to have children before you're 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 married or you don't even want to have a husband you just want to go get pregnant by somebody and have a child by yourself that's okay we call that family today which is unfortunate because that's not a family and so it was the judges society and and i think in ours as well people actually think that their idolatry and their immorality is right just ask people. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with what I'm doing. <laughs> They'll tell you. And when you point out, well, wait a minute, the Bible says this. What do they say? They just shut down. Well, that's just, <laughs> that's closed-minded. That's being intolerant. That's what blah, 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 blah. But what are they doing? They're being intolerant of what? Of God's truth. And so this is where we live today. 
and they reason and they compare um, what they feel and and they try to try to justify with other religious systems and they come up with the conclusion that they are committing righteous acts even though God's word says it's wrong and so this applies by the way and we're going to see this even tonight very dramatically even to the church the church doesn't get a pass on this and we don't as individual Christians get a pass on this either because when you go to the end of the Bible when you when you read through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter uh, 3 who do you find you find Jesus Christ what is he doing he's the Lord of the churches right he's the head of the church and what's he doing he's walking amongst the candlesticks and the Lord of the of the the Christian and the Lord of the church what's he doing he's he's kind of proclaiming wait we got a problem here even with churches and what is at stake here is the lordship of Christ in the life of the individual believer you know the enemy has thrown out this this mistruth of just free grace do whatever you want there's no consequences to anything and unfortunately a lot of Christians have eaten the bait hook line and sinker and Christ particularly even in Revelation in the Laodicean period, it it describes him as being shut outside the door of the church. They're taking his name. They're supposedly following him. But the presence, the guidance, the power of Christ has been shut out from among them because they're not willing to yield to his lordship. They want to do things their own way. And there will always be a breakdown when Christ is not permitted to rule. Whether it's in the church, whether it's in society, whether it's in your own life, whether it's in your family. Whether it's in the judges, and every man does what is right in his own eyes, but there is no king representing divine authority, or whether it's in the church and Christ is not given the place of divine authority, people start doing what is right in their own eyes. I watched a video this past week. It was uh, an interview with, I'm trying to think of his name, uh, Mark Driscoll, uh, Mark Dever, uh, and uh, who was the other guy, um, the bald-headed guy? Anyway, there's another pastor. No, um, he got defrocked too, but... Uh, they had an interview and they were they were pushing Mark Driscoll and this other pastor were pushing their multi-site churches where you have a church and and instead of having you know one church with you know 5000 people you have multiple churches with smaller numbers but instead of having a pastor there you just have a video screen and they were just pushing this to to Mark Dever and Mark Dever was pushing back on it. He said, well, I don't think that's biblical. You know, I don't, I don't think people show up to church on Sunday morning to see a video screen. I think they want a pastor. They want a real living human being there. And so they were, they were discussing this in a friendly manner. But I was blown away by the pridefulness of these two other pastors toward Mark Dever. And, I mean, they were just kind of giving him, like, oh, he wrote a big theological book, and I can't even read it. I don't even know what it means. You know, they were saying things like that. And um, and at one point, Mark Dever said, well, you know, the the word for church, ecclesia in the New Testament, means a gathering together, called out and being gathered together. You know, and, and, and Mark Driscoll kept on saying, says who? Says who? Who says that? Just questioning, I mean, all he was doing was stating the Greek language, right? I mean, there's no question. He was totally right in what he said. But they were pushing back on it with, with a prideful arrogance. And what's interesting, today, uh, you know, well, we know what happened to Mars Hill and all that. That went down the tubes. And the other pastor is no longer at his church either um, because of pride and arrogant issues. And, uh, you know, so it's, it, it's, it's weird when you, when you set God's truth aside and say, well, no, we've created a new way to do this. We want to do this a new way. And they had some strong arguments for what they were doing. 
I mean, they kept on saying, well, Mark, how many, how many people gather at your church? You know, we have 30,000 people. <laughs> I mean, they were just very arrogant to the poor guy. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard to watch. And this was years ago this happened before they, for any of them, uh, fell. But you see, whenever there's a breakdown and Christ is not allowed to rule, people start to do what is right in their own eyes. And so let's look at this idolatrous situation and see some of the pointers that hopefully that minister to us and instruct us, even in our own society, our own lives. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, how far are we from this situation? And so you see here in the first couple verses of chapter 17, they, they jolt us kind of. Uh, if we're familiar at all with the lifestyle God defines for his people in the Mosaic law, um, we're hardly prepared for what we're going to see here uh, in this typical Ephraimite family. Uh, verses 2 and 3, they introduce us to a guy named Micah. This guy is a man who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And he was moved with fear because he heard his mother, overheard his mother, kind of pronouncing a curse on the thief, whoever took the the 1,100 shekels. And so what's he do? He confesses. And so the curse was canceled by the mother's utterance of a blessing over her son's disobedience. And Micah restored the silver, which was then dedicated to God to make idols for the household shrine. I mean, you can't write this thing. You couldn't, I mean, you, this is so far from what God calls these people to do. So you have theft within a family. You have superstition and fear. You have the worship of idols. You have shrines and houses. The abandonment of the central sanctuary where they were supposed to worship. And every one of these things stands in stark contrast to the righteous way God ordains for, uh, for Israel to worship him and to live for him. Every one of these is characteristic of a pagan culture. And what was Israel called to do? Israel was called to drive this out, to supplant it, to, to replace it with righteousness from God. And yet, here's, here we are. And so, there was a, first of all, a domestic spiritual decline. A s- domestic spiritual decline. This guy named Micah, the Ephraimite, his name, by the way, means who is like Jehovah. Who is like Jehovah? What a name. Unfortunately, he didn't live up to it. His character did not correspond to the claim of his name, you might say. And we see that his, his immorality in the story and his, his spiritual idolatry just brings dishonor to the Lord. He's setting up idols in his home. He's making other idols. And so there were others in his eyes, who were like unto the Lord. That's what an idol is. An idol is anything that comes between you and the Lord. It doesn't have to be a little image you put on your dashboard. I remember when I was hitchhiking one time, I got in a a truck. I was hitchhiking from Indiana, Pennsylvania, back to Wansport on on I-80 there, and I got in this big rig truck. (laughs) And, I mean, this guy had everything on his dashboard. Everything. He had the Mother Mary, he had little Buddha. He had, I go, man, you're really kind. This was before I was a believer, right? You're really covering all the bases here, aren't you? You know, I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing. Anything that, that takes our eyes off the Lord. And in, in verse 2, we're kind of given an understanding of his moral standing. It says that the 1,100 pieces that was taken from you about which you uttered a curse was also spoken into my ears. Behold, the silver's with me. In other words, I took it. I mean, okay, great, he cops out to it, but it probably would have been found out anyway. They probably would have figured it out, so he's just doing what he had to do. You know, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. (laughs) You know, one of those deals. Um, He must have heard, we're not told how this happened, but he must have heard his mother cursing the man who stole this this, uh, stash of silver. And basically, he confessed to her, look, Mom, it was me, I, I did it. And he returns it. Great, good job. But you look deeper and you see the moral breakdown in his home. When what does his mother do? 
you know, I mean, can you imagine being in a household where, you know, hey, it's, you know, I had 40 bucks in my wallet and it's gone. And, and your son or your daughter comes, oh yeah, I stole it. But I didn't spend it yet, so here you go. Oh, blessed you, my daughter, my son. No. I mean, I don't think that would be your response. It'd be like, wait a minute, what? You went into my purse, you went into my wallet and stole money and you gave it back and now you want me to reward you? But that's exactly what she does. And she says this, she blesses him for returning the silver in verse 4. We read that. And then she says this, I was going to give you this money anyway, sons, to go away and make some idols so that we could worship the Lord Jehovah. In other words, this was money that was dedicated to the Lord. I, de I dedicated the silver to the Lord from the hand, from my hand for my son to make the carved image and a metal image. That's, that's describing what they would call a, a, a hollow image. All right? So what they would do is they would take a piece of wood and they would fashion it in whatever shape they wanted their little god to be. And because the mother here was too cheap to use all the silver <laughs> to give it to the silversmith to make the idol, right? She was too cheap to do that. She was too greedy, really. So they, they'd make a wood thing and then they would put silver, kind of laminate, laminate over top of it. So the inside, it wasn't really all silver. It was just kind of a fake idol. Um, still a value. But she said she was going to give you all this money and what does she do? She gives him 200 shekels out of the 1,100, which kind of proves her own dishonesty in the matter because, well, wait a minute. You said you set all this money aside. Now you're carving it up? You know, it's like the farmer I heard who had, he ended up with two, two calves on his farm. And, you know, they thought they were going to have one and all of a sudden they have two. And the farmer graciously says, Lord, you know what? I dedicate this calf to you. And weeks later, the other calf dies. And what's the farmer say? Lord, sorry about your calf. You know, that was your calf that died, not mine. You know, and that's, and that's how it goes a lot of times. You know, boy, thank you, Lord, for blessing me with this tax refund. And boy, if we just get a little more, I'll give this all to you. Oh, now you got it, but uh, I think I'm just going to get a little bit. You know, that happened in the New Testament, remember? God doesn't look kindly on those kind of vows. Um, when they said they were going to sell certain land for the Lord, they came into the church saying, oh yeah, we gave all of it to the Lord, and, and they didn't. What happened to them? Right? The Lord struck them dead. And I said, survivor. so we don't, <laughs> it's better not to make any pledge at all than to not live up to it. But this family here, she seemed to have set aside uh, this money for some reason for herself. But if, if there was ever a dysfunctional family, this definitely is one. This, this, this ranks up there. Because they managed to break almost all of the Ten Commandments and yet not feel at least bit guilty before the Lord. In fact, it seems that they thought they were serving the Lord even as they did these bizarre things that he totally forbid them to do. Think about it. The son didn't honor his mother. Instead, he stole from her. And then he lied about it. So first, he, he coveted the silver, and then he took it, according to Galatians 3, 5, uh, covetousness is idolatry. And then he lied about the whole enterprise until the curse scared him into confessing. So he broke the fifth, the eighth, and the ninth, and tenth commandments. And then he broke the first and the second commandments by having a shrine of false gods in his home. According to Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, when he stole the silver, he broke the third commandment, and he took the name of the Lord in vain. So he broke seven of the ten commandments without even leaving their home. I mean, that's quite an achievement. And yet, they think they're worshiping God. This is how sin is deceptive. And so the man's Mother broke the first two commandments by making an idol and encouraging her son to maintain a private shrine in his own home. So first of all, you see this deceit and theft going on in the home on the part of the son. Obviously, he had no respect for his mother, stealing 1,100 shekels of silver from her. 
plus he was deceiving her, as well as thieving from her. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, you can turn there, I'll just read it for you, but it, 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 it kind of shows us what we're dealing with. 1 Timothy, Paul writing this to Timothy, verse 1 to 7 of chapter 3, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, Paul writes, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having, look at what it says, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Beloved, are we not living in days like this? This is, this is, the daily news i just heard today a a lady was uh, i guess murdered in in new york city a little baby little i don't know how old it was but it was trying to somebody tried to stole the steal the baby in broad daylight you have all kinds of things going on in our society today it was i think it was vance vance havner who said this many years ago you know what we shouldn't worry about the government not allowing uh, children to have bibles in schools don't worry about that. They'll get one when they get to prison. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. It's sad, but it's the truth. That reflects the society we live in today. So you see this dysfunctional family in that there was thief and deceit in the home, but you also see there was no parental correction in this household at all. I mean, the son owns up to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver, and what does the mother do? She blesses him. After cursing the one who was anonymous to her at that point, who had stolen it. When she finds out at her own son, she, she doesn't curse him. She blesses him. What, what is that? She's indulging, really, her son in her, his sin. She also has a, a double tongue. She's also a liar. James talks about this. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be, James says. And we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is our conversation as a parent in our homes? What effect is it having on our children? You know, we see in this dysfunctional family that there was no parental correction. He owns up to stealing it, and what does the mother do? Blesses him as a result of it. She didn't check her son's waywardness. She encouraged his, his sin. And then she gives him three, 200 shekels excuse me, to go and make some idols. I mean, what planet are these people living on? And yet, they think they're worshiping God. Well, not only was there deceit, no parental cor- cor- uh, correction, but there was no parental example, <laughs> clearly. They encouraged him in idolatry and, and so on. Um, parents who have no true values to communicate to their children is what we're seeing today because everything's relative. You can't correct little Mary or little Johnny anymore because most parents are afraid little Johnny or little Mary will pick up the phone and say, my mommy's being mean to me. And the authorities will get involved. I mean, literally, parents are terrified of that. Now, scholars tell us that this was a wealthy home. How do we know? Well, 1,100 silver shekels compared with the 10 shekels and the, the shirt and the, that the Levite gets the next, the next chapter um, for a year's service. They gave this guy 10 shekels, and they had 1,100. Um, so it was quite a bit of value to it. It was a great deal more than that man's yearly wages. But they got their values all wrong. They're valuing material things. But more than that, I think it, it seems they look very deeply in this. If you look very deeply in this passage, you see that this family managed to break down these commandments and 
without any guilt. So we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is really going on here? How on earth did these people believe that they were serving the Lord through all of this idolatrous behavior? I mean, contrast this mother with another mother in the book of Judges. Remember Samson's mother? Who prayed, who sought God's guidance for her son. And while he was a wayward man in himself, he did have a prestigious upbringing from godly parents. How did they believe that they were doing the right thing? Micah and this this priest and his mother and the family, they didn't worship Baal. They weren't Baal worshipers. They weren't worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites. They were worshiping, according to their own profession, Jehovah the Lord. Verse 3 mentions the Lord. Verse 13, it is the Lord that they're dedicating these idols to. Now, it was wrong, but... They weren't out there worshiping at the the altar of Baal. I mean, isn't that frightening? That that you know you can have the name Micah. There is none like the Lord. There's none like Jehovah. Or you can have the name Christian. Or you can say you're a follower of Christ. And you could verbally and externally seem to be worshiping the Lord and following Jesus, yet with all this idleness settled in your own heart. Because people don't see it, it's okay. There's one song that said, the greatest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, let me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We all have a potential to allow our hearts to be captivated by other things other than the Lord. And this becomes clearer when we see that it was not only this domestic decline that was happening, but there was a do-it-yourself man-made religion going on here. And we see a lot of that today. And so this brings us from the home to God's first, God's first institution, the home, to the next one in the story, the worshiping community. And you want to ask yourself, how does self in the home affect our faith? Does what goes on in the home affect what goes on here at church? Do we believe the lie? Well, no. They're two separate things. I can come here and act one way, and I can act another way in my home, and you know the two don't mix. And I would beg to argue with you. Um, don't ever think that what you do when you go home on a Sunday, and by the way, the rest of the week at work and everywhere else, does not affect this community of faith. Because it does. In verses 5 and 6, we see that Michael put these idols in a shrine in his household with other household gods that he obviously had already had. And then he also decided to institute a priesthood for his own family. I want a priest. I'm just going to create one. That'd be like you going home and saying, you know, I, I I declare myself pastor of my house. And I'm starting a church. Just because you want to do it. You're not called by God to do it. So he says he made an ephod, which is a priestly garment. It's what was strictly worn by the priest. And he consecrated his own son to be a priest. So right away, right out of the, the gate here, he is transgressing the law. He is breaking every violation. The law of Moses forbade that an Ephraimite should be a priest. Who were, who were the, the select people that were God's select people for the priesthood? Levites. Levites. All right? The law of Moses said that worship should only be done in the tabernacle, not in the, the home with a bunch of other idols. So he's coming up with his own homemade, man-made, do-it-yourself religion. And if you look over at chapter 18, verse 24, you see the ridiculous nature of man-made religion. 
Judges 18, verse 24, it says, And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest (laughs) and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? Uh, You know, how then do you ask me, what does this matter to you? You know, and this is a confrontation he's having because what happens is the Danites come and they, they take his idol and they take his priests. And, and he's going, hey, wait a minute. You know, you stole my God. <laughs> Let me tell you, if your God can be stolen, find a new one. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're serving the wrong God. That's the ridiculous nature of idolatry. That's why God condemns it. See, idolatry is not the the forbidding of of worshiping other gods. That's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is also the sin of worshiping the true and living God by images made to represent Him. It's both. And I think that's the point we often miss here because if we worship the true and living God by an image, what are we doing? We're robbing God of His glory. We're robbing God of His glory. Now, we all probably have old photographs that we wouldn't allow anybody to see. <laughs> you know, Sometimes I'll bring up photographs or I'll, I'll take the picture and my wife quickly grabs the phone and deletes it. From the phone. You're not showing that to anybody. That's not a good picture of me or whatever. Um, it's a terrible thing to have a, a photograph circulated when it really doesn't do you any justice at all. And that's what idolatry is. That's exactly what idolatry is in a sense. But it's far, far worse than that. Because imagine your name being put on a picture of someone that is clearly not you. What would that be? That would be forgery, right? Well, that's what idolatry is in God's eyes. To put His name to a picture that is not Him. It cannot come near His glory. And there's much in Christianity today that is done, you could say, in the name of Christ, that is sheer idolatry. Often it involves a false priesthood. You don't have to look very far, just look at the the Roman Catholic Church, right? Uh, The Council of Trent states this, the images of Christ and of the Virgin Mother of God and the other saints are to be had and to be kept, especially in churches, and due honor and veneration are to be given to them. These are images. That's wrong. That's idolatry. But we can condemn that kind of idolatry in Rome. But you know what? We can all have that same equal kind of idolatry maybe in a different form. We can present a Christ in evangelicalism that is not the Christ of the Bible. And that's what happens sometimes today. The idea of priesthood often comes with idolatry. See, there was only one priesthood in Micah's day. And it was of the family of Aaron. And and you know what? Another Levite couldn't do it. Or anyone else in the whole tribes of Israel couldn't do it. You had to be of the line family of Aaron. And it's the same today. There's only one great high priest, right? God has set aside all other priests, all other priesthoods, and He's given us the priesthood of His Son, the Bible says. And He's made us, all kings and priests, to come unto the God, our God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a a clerical priesthood Any clerical priesthood is idolatry today because it takes the place of Christ. You could even say it's antichrist. It's a man-made religion. So you have domestic spiritual decline going on here. You have man-made religion. And then thirdly, we find that it was a, a, a very strong disregard for any principles or any precepts of God's Word. Um... This is hard to believe, but this is very, very true. There's a disregard for God's Word. Um, 
if there's one word that I guess sums up this whole awful situation in the land of Israel at the time, it's the word confusion. Confusion. Because when everybody does what is right in their own eyes, what happens? You live in a confused society. Because what might be right in my eyes may not be right in your eyes. And who are you to tell me how I should, you know, if I want to come and steal your car, hey, if it's right in my eyes, I'm going to do it. You have people walking into stores and walking out with thousands of dollars of clothes. And by the way, they're not even running anymore. They're just walking. And the security guards are watching them go. Because the police are never going to be called. The police aren't going to respond. It's not the police's fault. Because the laws have changed. They go in and they know exactly. They steal this much, they're not going to do anything. I mean, it is so bizarre what's going on today. I saw the other night on the news, a father's daughter was, um, I don't know if she was raped or just accosted in a, in a, a woman's, a girl's bathroom by one of these transgender kids, a guy who was dressed up like a girl. And he took advantage of a, a, young, a younger girl in one of these bathrooms, and the school board basically said, oh, you know, don't look there, that's not really happening. And so the father, who was irate when he found out about it, went to the school board, starting to share his information with the school board, and he was hauled away. The police came and said, you're not allowed to speak here, and, and took him away. I don't know if he went about it the right way or not, but I mean, we definitely live in a weird society today. Confusion is in the home. Confusion is in our nation. Confusion is in, I would say, even in the church. You have churches today that are still closed. Why? I mean, it's, it's so frustrating. And then the ones that are open are demanding, well, you got to have a vaccine mandate card or you got to have this, you got to have that. And it's sad. It's really sad. And where does all this confusion come from? Well, that's what verse 6 is there for. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, when you ignore the law of God, when it is ignored, you have confusion throughout society. If the law of God is observed, none of these things here in this context would have happened. Well, wait, I, you know, we can't, I can't be stealing my mother's 11 pieces of, 1,100 pieces of shekel, shekel because that's wrong. That's stealing. The Lord says that's not right. I'm not going to do that. Oh, my son's not allowed to put up idols in the household. That's wrong. God says we shouldn't do that. And what I want you to note here is I said that the people were to worship in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the last uh, verse of chapter 18, told us that it was in Shiloh. Shiloh is the hill country of Ephraim. Shiloh is only a short journey from Michael's house, Micah's house. Don't think for one moment that Michael, Micah's idolatry was because, well, he, he couldn't get the church. That's why he did this. He, he, he had an unavailability of God's house. He couldn't get to God's house to worship. That's why he did this. Give him a pass. Yeah, just do the Zoom church for the rest of your life. See how that works for you. I mean, you can't go to church. That would be unsafe. It has nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with his refusal to follow God's word, to be obedient. Why? Because he was doing what was right in his own eyes. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. And we have to have some form of understanding. You know, churches that are still closed, in their, in their eyes, in their hearts, they're doing the right thing. The churches that are open are the ones that are, boy, they're just spreading the virus. It's horrible. This is what's going out there. You know, you want to wear a mask? Wear a mask. I really don't care. 
I don't think it does you any good at whatsoever, especially against this virus. It's not going to do you any good. I mean, there's no scientific study that says masks are the way to go. None, zero. Ken shared with me a little test. He said, you know, it's funny. He goes, you know, put a mask on, take an orange, cut it in half, bring it up with your mask on, and just squeeze it a little bit and see if you can smell the citrus. If you can smell the citrus, guess what? That mask isn't going to do you any good against this virus. So unless you're wearing a space helmet or something, it's ridiculous. But it's a way to control us. It's a, it's a what? The mask has become a symbol of fear in our community. you got to have the mask on. If you don't have the mask on, you could die. If you don't get the vaccine, you could die. It's ridiculous. I'm not saying you shouldn't get the vaccine. Get the vaccine if you want to get the vaccine. It's irrelevant to me. But we shouldn't judge people that don't. We shouldn't judge people that do, is what my point is. What did Micah want here? He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't want him to go to the tabernacle. That was too inconvenient. He wanted to make his own little Israel, his own little worship tabernacle in his own house for himself. What does that teach us? It teaches us a great deal concerning some of the, the tensions we see going on today between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. We are to be guided by God's word and by God's spirit not by what we think is right in our own eyes. Because that leads to our own motivations and decisions. Well, the fourth thing here, I want you to notice is that their decisions were clearly motivated by money. Mammon. Um, Mammon is the word that the Lord Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really the personification of the idea of, of materialism, of wealth. Some believe it was the name of the Syrian god that he had borrowed it from. But here we, we see this coming in the person of this, this man, this Levite, in verses 7 to 17. This is a guy, he lived in Bethlehem among the people of Judah. But now, where is he? He's not where he should be. He's found in the hill country of Ephraim looking for a place to sojourn, he says. I'm out sojourning around. I'm looking for a, a better place to stay. i got to better myself. can't be hanging out in Bethlehem for the rest of my life. Now listen, he shouldn't even have been here in Ephraim. He was employed in the service of the Lord as a Levite. They took care of the temple. He had a city of calling. God's call was on the Levite's life. He was not meant to have this opportunistic attitude moving from place to place and looking for a better job. That's not. That's why they would take up what? Offerings. Because they would care for the Levites. Because why? They cared for the temple. They took custody of the temple. They took care of it. So what this infers is because there was a spiritual decline in the nation, guess what? People weren't giving their, their offerings to the temple for the ministry of the Levites, of which this guy was one. And guess what? That's what they lived off of. That's what they made their living off of was the offerings that people gave to the temple so that they could take care of the people that took care of the temple. Well, apparently, the funds weren't coming in, so he was forced, in a sense, to go out and support his own ministry because the people of God weren't supporting it because they were in spiritual decline. So he's out wandering around. He reaches Ephraim, and he finds Micah. And what does Micah say? Hey, I have a need. <laughs> What do you do? I have a need of a priest. Wow, you're, you're a Levite? Guess what? I'm going to make you my priest. I'll even pay you to do it. 
Well, this is, you know, wow, this is good news to this guy's ears. This young man was a Levite, but he was not necessarily of the Aaron. Therefore, he was probably not eligible to serve as a priest. So what made him do it? Because he probably would have been a little more dedicated if he had been a priest. But what made him do it here? Well, Micah offered him a salary, 10 shekels. 10 shekels and a shirt. I'll take care of you. I'll give you some food. This guy's out wandering around. He's like, yeah, no problem. You got a deal. He had no right to do this. And as a Levite, he clearly knew and he should have confronted Micah. He should have told him God's law. He said, no, this isn't right. There's some precepts and some principles that God's word says. And and if we do this, we're transgressing God's law. But what happened? Economic expediency dictated his policy. He had a need for a priest. The Levite had a need for a job. And these two unprincipled men met. Now, somebody once said that money makes the world go round. And it certainly makes the gospel go round. So it's not that money is not important. Money is important to any ministry. You need money to print tracts. You need money to give out Bibles. You need money to pay pastors. You need money to pay the light bill. You need need money to do it. That's just bottom line. And while money is not unimportant, we have to be careful that we don't make money all important. Right? Because it's not. And what the lesson God's Spirit is giving us here is that money must never be the sole determining factor of God's people or even individual Christians. I don't believe just money should be the motivation in decisions of churches. It shouldn't be the the sole motivation in the lives of God's servants or God's people. And this is twofold. If the children of Israel had been giving their tithes into the tabernacle, if they wouldn't have been in spiritual decline, the Levite would have been supplied for, and his likelihood, the likelihood is that he wouldn't have been out wandering around looking for another job. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. So you have to understand there's nothing wrong with supporting someone in ministry. And you can actually harm a servant of God by not providing the support. Because then they're forced to go try to do other things. I thank God for this church that they've grown into the the place where they can support a full-time pastor. And I pray that The support will continue, not just for me, but for additional staff if we ever choose to hire someone. See, but on the other side of the coin, concerning this Levite, if he had been content with God's call on his life, where God had put him, guess what? I don't think he would be wandering around the countryside with this selfish ambition, and he wouldn't have sought greater things for himself. You know, being in ministry, sometimes you're kind of the, you tend to be the brunt of the joke. You know, you're just there for the money. It's all about the money. Well, I've been doing this long enough, and early on, the money wasn't there. <laughs> uh, you, know, you always worked one or two other jobs. The church couldn't afford to pay you. And so it's not about the money. Now, it may be in some Pastors' lives, I guarantee you it is. In some pastors' lives, it's all about the money. Um, I heard a joke about preachers moving around to different various churches. And there was a preacher who was being called to a larger church. And the question was, is that God's will? And somebody from the small church that he was at called around one day to talk about it with the pastor. 
He came to the pastor and he was met at the door by their little girl. They had a little girl, the pastor and his wife. And so the parishioner asked, where's your mom and dad, dear? And she said, oh, dad's upstairs praying about the move and mom's downstairs packing. (laughs) That happens way too often, beloved. Uh, and that was the way it was with this Levi, man. He, he was seeking a place. He was looking for a better opportunity, whereas God's Word says what? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so the opposite of that is true as well. Discontent brings, breeds ungodliness and leads to great spiritual loss, while it may bring financial or monetary or even prestigious gain. And that's really what the Lord Jesus was trying to get across in Matthew 6, verse 24, when he said, no one can serve what? Two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve what? God and mammon, or money. It wasn't just love for the mighty dollar that warped his service, but his love for prestige as well. And the Levite refused to be satisfied with God's arrangements for his life. He was committed to self-promotion, to personal betterment. Micah wanted a proper Levite as a priest. The Levite wanted the job. Maybe he aspired to being one of these priests of Aaron, but he couldn't because of his birth, so suddenly... The opportunity came up, and he became an ordained member of the clergy. Well, we're going to find out where this leads in chapter 18 the next time, because we begin to see the moral decline, and we begin to see the the confusion and the decay that sets in to this this whole scenario. And and this is what happens when you take God out of the picture. It, 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 It just invites confusion. It invites chaos. And that's exactly what we see going on all around us. And I think we have to be constantly praying that God would be gracious to us as individuals, be gracious to our church, be gracious to our society, be gracious to our nation during this time. Because it's not good. It's not good what's happening. And, you know, that I mean, I mean, you wish the government was MIA. <laughs> in some ways they are, but in other ways they're not, which is really scary. So uh, we just need to be praying about that and, and, and thinking about those things. Let me close in a word of prayer and then we can just open up for any discussion. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these words, Lord. It seems so distant (laughs) and yet it seems so relevant to what's going on even in our own world today as we look around us and we see wrong things according to your word being declared as right. And there's a complete voice that says, oh, we we want to be tolerant of everyone, but we're not going to tolerate the Word of God. We're not going to tolerate Christ. We're not going to tolerate Jesus. We're not going to tolerate salvation as God prescribes it to be. And Lord, these people need the Lord. And Lord, that's why You've left us here. To be salt, to be the light in the darkness, to bring the truth to bear. Help us not to be willing to uh, turn away from that calling. Lord, whether people want to hear it or not, uh, we really need to um, understand that our modern world has substituted idols for the true and living God. And they devise their own humanistic religion, complete with the priests, the experts who tell us (laughs) that the Bible's wrong, but their way is right. But neither their idols nor their priests have any power against the violence of the sinful human heart. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to 
really bring the truth of God to bear. Help us to be bold in our witness for Christ. Help us not to be concerned what people may label us, but Lord, that we would be willing to speak up and to speak truth and allow the consequences to fall where they may. And so, Father, we pray that you would just uh, bless our, the rest of our evening, take us safely home, and uh, we thank you for our time here tonight. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Anybody have any comments or questions?